0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, if you've got a Bible, maybe to be in John 8. Um, while you're turning there, I just want to address one issue with the passage that not everyone's going to care about. In fact, probably a minority is going to care about. But since it's here, I just want to address it anyway. And that is, in John chapter 8, um, most modern day translations have a little thing above it. That says the earliest manuscripts do not include John seven fifty-three through John eight eleven. What is going on right there? And your your Bible might have like brackets around this passage. Some Bible translations actually take the woman caught in adultery and put it like in the footnotes part. And so just depending on what kind of Bible and so let me just make two statements about that. And if you've got other issues with it, it's actually a long drawn out. Speech of blahness. And so you can just talk to me afterwards if you've got more issues. But let me at least make two statements. There is almost complete consensus amongst biblical scholars and textual critics that this passage was not written by John. So almost every Bible scholar and every textual critic out there um, that's conservative and that's trying to find out what is actually the Bible would say that this passage, really good chance it's not written by the gospel by the writer John. In addition, the other statement, though, however, there is almost complete consensus by biblical scholars and textual critics that this passage was witnessed by an apostle, written by an apostle, and should therefore be treated as an authoritative part of God's word. So the issue isn't so much whether or not it's God's word or not. It's just where to put it and who wrote it. And so some, you know, like, frankly, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have and the most reliable ones either put this passage in Luke or they just don't have it in there altogether. And so the issue is just who wrote it and where to put it. Not so much is it authoritative. Is it a, a first hand eyewitness account by an apostle? So this passage I'm treating as though it's authoritative God's word. I don't know if John wrote it. I think there's a good argument, honestly, that John did write it. But there's also a good argument that he didn't write it. We're not going to get into it. We are officially done with that. So, amen. the guy, amen, for the, yeah, for the 5% of you that cared. Um, the gospel is good news for every single type of person. Every single type of individual, the gospel is absolutely good news for. On the one hand, the reason why we absolutely know this is because Jesus Christ goes to a wide variety of types of people and does two things. He identifies their sin and tells them that the solution to their sin problem is himself. He does that all over the place to a variety of different types of people. So let's just look at John leading up to John chapter 8. In John chapter 3, Jesus chats with this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious ruler, high up there Pharisee, teacher of the law an outwardly moral good person that inwardly is probably a little bit off. But Jesus goes to Nicodemus and has this discussion over what it means to be saved via the terminology being born again, So Jesus and Nicodemus have this conversation about what it means to be born again and what actually is the gospel. And so Jesus, on the one hand, goes to Pharisees and goes to guys like Nicodemus and says, here's your sin. Your sin is you're trusting in the law. You're trusting in your knowledge. You're trusting in um, Scripture itself. But you've forgotten that Scripture points to me. And so your sin is you're trusting in your own outward moral actions rather than trusting in me. So he goes to the Pharisees, identifies their sin and says, I'm the solution. And then literally, the next chapter, Jesus goes to John chapter 4, to the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is like the complete opposite end of the pendulum. She is an outwardly rebellious, sinful woman. And Jesus does the same thing that he did with Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman. Jesus walks up to the Samaritan woman and says... I know you've got five husbands right now. I know that you, the Samaritan woman, are finding all of your hope, approval, satisfaction and joy in what other people, namely what men think about you. And I want you to know, Samaritan woman, that that is a dry, empty pursuit. And that if you want to have water that satisfies your soul uh, to a degree that nothing else or no other person can satisfy, that comes through me. And so he goes to the Pharisee on the one hand, the outwardly moral, and then he goes to the Samaritan on the other hand. And it's the same gospel identifies their sin and says, I'm the solution. Then chapter five, it's no different. It's like Nicodemus. It's just a group of Pharisees. And Jesus is a little bit rougher. You know, another thing to note is, depending on the type of person, really, that's how Jesus, Jesus has different demeanors towards different people. So in John five, he's talking a little bit more harshly with the Pharisees. He says things like, you read the scripture. You read it like it's salvation and you, the Pharisees, memorize the Torah and you've forgotten that all of that points to me, Jesus. So he gets real kind of angry and aggressive with the Pharisees. He gets like a little bit rougher with them. And so we've got these kind of extremes where Jesus takes the gospel to Pharisees that are outwardly moral, but inwardly they're just all messed up. And Jesus sees right into them. And then he goes over to the Samaritan woman and he talks about the gospel and how, you know, men are not what satisfies; He is what satisfies. And so you get these pendulums and we're here. You know, you're here in one of the two. You know, you're you're somewhere kind of here. You know, you could be kind of leaning towards a Pharisee where you outwardly appear to be good. You know, he describes them elsewhere as whitewashed tombs that look really, really pretty on the outside. But in the inside, they are dead and they're lifeless. And so, you know, a good mark of a Pharisee is you know, like, why do you come to church? I mean, at the end of the day, what we can say now, because we have the scripture and we're here today, is we can say that all of the Old Testament Points to and funnels on Jesus Christ, and then we have the gospel that's actually a story of Jesus, and then we got the right the epistles that just go back and sort of sort of um, are it's just an exposition of who Jesus is. And now today the church is all about Jesus, and so everything we do culminates on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Pharisees they just miss that, you know, they just don't. It just kind of go well if we just if we can just do right things with wrong motives, that's okay. And Jesus says no, that's not okay. OK, and so we go to these this is extreme sort of people that Jesus goes to and says, I know your sin and I'm the answer. And then in John chapter six, he's just in front of a crowd, the feeding of the five thousand. And Jesus says, you know, here's here's bread. And then he pulls the disciples aside and says, just like you're eating bread and that bread is satisfying you on a hunger level. I can give you a sort of satisfa- a sort of soul satisfaction that no bread can do for you. And so we've got Jesus with Nicodemus the Samaritan woman, a group of Pharisees and large crowds, same message, different people. Then we get to John 8 and all of those people are present. All of those types of people are present in this one story in John chapter 8. We've got Pharisees and scribes. We've got disciples. We've got a crowd and we've got the person Jesus Christ managing a very difficult situation. Very interesting. He's in a classic rock in a hard place what are we going to do? How's he going to manage it? Let's go John chapter 8. It starts out, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So here's the setting. We've just got Jesus teaching a bunch of people early in the morning. What we know is that these, these this crowd that's present is probably... What, we, what, you know, what, what the New Testament would call sinners, tax collectors, something like that. Most of the people that were attracted to Jesus' teaching were people that were really kind of in a sinful way of living because the message of grace and forgiveness and mercy was so enticing to them, which makes sense. So this crowd is probably filled with people that are sinful, wanting to know what hope is, wanting to know what mercy is, wanting to know what grace is. And so this is a very attentive, very interested Um, a crowd that really does want to learn from this man, Jesus. And this crowd is about to get rudely interrupted by a group of Pharisees with their own agenda. And so let's look at what the Pharisees do in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a, such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So I want to do different perspectives. Let's look at what is going on from the Pharisee perspective. Well, we can note three things about the Pharisees. The first is they showed incredible partiality. Like, where is the man in this scene? I mean, there, there's got to be a man that is part of this whole thing, you know. And so the Pharisees, I, there's a couple of different option as to where the man is. Why, why did the Pharisees just bring a woman to Jesus? Did the man either like, um, you know, the man could have seen the Pharisees coming and could have just like ran away and escaped. I doubt it, but that could have happened. Or, um, the man could have been, uh, their present sexual relations is happening. The Pharisees come in and in just a sheer act of chauvinism, the Pharisees could have just taken the woman and left the man. And honestly, you know, not to be rude women, but in the first century, women just got mistreated all the time. That would, that would, that's a very likely scenario. That the Pharisees just said, well, let's just leave the man. Let's just take the most defenseless and the most helpless person here to Jesus. Or, option three, is the Pharisees could have... Because they have a really well-thought-out plan here, which we'll get to in just a minute. But they could have conspired with this man that was committing adultery with this woman and said, hey man, why don't you create a scenario and get this woman here so that way we can, we can take the woman and try to trap Jesus and use this as a trap for Jesus, which we'll talk about in a second. And so the, the Pharisees could have conspired with this man and then just said, we'll just let you go, we'll just let you go. At any case, either option A, B, or C, whatever, we don't really know what happened, the Pharisees are guilty of partiality. That's a big deal because that is in the, we'll get to this a little bit later, but in the Mosaic law, that's a law. You cannot show partiality. And the Pharisees are actually going to try to use the law to bring down Jesus while breaking the law themselves. And Jesus is going to just call them out on it later. It's really cool. And so the Pharisees bring this woman right to Jesus. And so what we know about the Pharisees is that they're just chauvinistic. They are showing partiality. They bring the most helpless, defenseless woman to Jesus. They let the man go. Chauvinistic, partiality, not cool. Second thing they do is they test Jesus. Say, Jesus, the law of Moses, it says that if we find a woman caught in adultery, then we get to stone this woman. What do you think we should do? They're testing Jesus. What's the test here? What's going on? On the one hand... If Jesus says, yes, let's stone this woman. If Jesus says, you're right, the Mosaic, the Mosaic law says we need to stone this woman. We, uh, so we need to bring about execution on this woman. Let's stone her. The thing that would happen is Jesus would actually be breaking the Roman law. Because in Rome, the only entity that had the power and the right to bring capital punishment to an individual was the Roman judicial system not Jesus. So legally, Jesus cannot have someone executed. But the Pharisees, they want him to kill this woman. Why? Because the Pharisees, if Jesus kills this woman, the Pharisees can go to the Roman government and say, hey, this guy, Jesus, just broke your laws. He had someone executed, didn't go through the Roman judicial system, and we need to kill him. That's what the Pharisees want. They want Jesus dead. So on the one hand, if Jesus says, hey, let's, let's kill this woman, let's execute her, she broke the, the Mosaic law then he could actually get killed by the Roman government. And the other hand, you know, if Jesus says, this is the other thing, side note, but if Jesus says, let's kill this woman, Jesus has a crowd of people listening to him talk about grace and mercy and love. And so this crowd is probably a lot like this woman, you know. I mean, this is a sinful crowd that is following Jesus. So if this crowd sees Jesus execute a sinful woman, they're probably going to think, uh, are we going to get executed? Because we're a lot like that woman. So it would, just be, it would wreak havoc on Jesus' ministry, be detrimental to his ministry. Be, it would be the opposite. It would be counter to the message of grace and forgiveness and love that he's trying to bring to all of these sinful people. And the Pharisees know that. They want to ruin his ministry, want to ruin his life. So if Jesus says, yes, let's kill the woman, he's in a lot of trouble. If Jesus says, no, let's not kill the woman, What the Pharisees could do is say, you're breaking your own laws. You are not upholding the Mosaic law. So what they would do is, this is literally what would happen. They would go to what's called the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish rulers. And the Sanhedrin, try to follow me, would go to the Roman government and say, hey, one of our teachers is a heretic and he's broken one of our laws, but we can't have him killed. But you can, Roman government. Can you please kill Jesus for breaking our laws? It's like either way... The Roman government is coming after Jesus. I mean, Jesus is in a classic rock and a hard place. If he says, yes, Roman government's going to kill him for killing a woman. If he says, no, Pharisees are going to go to Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin to the Roman government, and Roman government's going to kill him. So now Jesus is just in this kind of predicament about what to do. And so that is uh, the Pharisees' perspective. And just another thing to note about the Pharisees, they wanted to test Jesus. That was their motive, was to test him. This was really interesting because the Pharisees actually have really good roots. I mean, in the Inter testament period, the period at the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, all of Israel really went kind of rebellious. I mean, they all kind of turned away from God and they all kind of were disobedient to God's law. And there arose this group of men and women and this group that arose wanted to go back to the law, wanted to go back to obedience, wanted to return back to the Torah and really love God and be obedient to God. And so back then, they were called the Pharisees, which literally means the separatist. They were actually, good, at, at the beginning stages, they wanted reform to have, they were the ancient Israel Puritans when they began. I mean, they really wanted reform to break out in Israel. They really did love God, really did want to worship God and obey God. So they arose and you can just see the spiritual disintegration that's happened with Pharisees. Right now, there is nothing inside of them that wants to love God. There is nothing inside of them that wants to obey the commands of God. Their sole motive in this text is simply to trap Jesus Christ. That's their sole motive. You can just see, I mean this, when you stop repenting, spiritual disintegration happens. That's what we see with the Pharisees. So they stopped repenting and now their only motive, like they didn't, they didn't weep over this woman's sin. I guarantee you that. Like they weren't broken hearted over this woman caught in adultery. They were just using this woman just to try to get Jesus Christ, Christ killed. I mean, that is really a, I mean, they've gone from spiritual shakers and movers and reformers to really spiritually, dis, I mean, you can just see the disintegration. Motives were simply to test Jesus. So that was from the Pharisees perspective. Now let's look at this from the woman's perspective. So um, in the summer of 2008, I was working at Walnut Ridge Baptist Church, which is where I think it was 2008. This story. Yeah, I think it was. And, um, I, that's Walnut Ridge is the church that, that Stonegate is, they help Stonegate get off the ground. And, um, Rodney was the student pastor and I was working there and Kevin was the youth worship leader. And Sam Rinkle was there as an intern and Trisha was working with us. And, um, I think we were dating at this time and Rodney invites us all over for a block party at his house. And so I think he invites me and Sam and Kevin and we all go over to his house with a block party going on. We're grilling out, we're hanging out, we're just talking we're throwing the football around, and so you know how guys get, you know, when they're throwing the football, you know, we, we're loosening up the cannon, we're starting to throw longer distances, you know, we're starting to run routes, kind of refresh on the old days when we were in high school, the glory days. And so we're starting to throw, we're getting our arms loose, and you know, we're doing some, and so we're starting to run routes and stuff, and Rodney, Rodney looks at me and goes, hey, I want not you just go long, just go real long. I'm like, yeah, let's go, I'm gonna go real long. And so I start I start running. I start running. We're in the middle of the street. It's a block party. So I start running right down the middle of the street. And I'm going about 75%. I mean, this is, this is really important to me that we make a good catch here. And so I'm running pretty hard. And um, Rodney releases it. One of the things, you know, I don't want to brag, but I used to be a receiver in high school. And it was a, it was a TAPS 3A private school. So it doesn't really matter. But... They, can you if you 're a guy, you could play football at, at taps three a but so I, but one of the things they teach you as a receiver they teach you this this skill where when the quarterback releases the pass to try and visualize where the ball's going to be you know that's a skill they try to teach you in football is right when the quarterback releases it as a receiver it's really good for you to be able to develop the skill of visualizing right where the ball's going to be when it gets there in a few seconds and so Rodney releases this pass i 'm going seventy five percent you know And it's like an overthrow, like I'm it's like way out in front of me is where it's going to end up being. So I kick it up a notch going 100 percent now. And as a receiver, when you're when you're running for a pass, you know, you're you're looking at it kind of like this. You're looking behind you and you're running that way. And out in front of me is a parked van. (laughs) So I'm running, I mean, just hauling. In my head, I'm Jerry Rice, about to make the game-winning catch, greatest catch ever. And I I ran right into the back of a parked van. <laughs> and so, it was a big van, and it had a ladder on the back of it. And so, the first thing that hit was my thigh on the ring of the, the horizontal part of the ladder. And um, then my head hit the other part of the ladder. So, it was like a double, you know, first the thigh, and then the head snapped and... I hit, I hit my head, and I fell, obviously, right to the ground, no chance. And so, and I was really dizzy. It, like, it was not funny. I mean, for all I knew, my femur bone was, like, two <laughs> feet back. And so I just didn't know. I mean, I was, and my head started to swell a little bit, and I was really dizzy, and I didn't know really what was going on. And I'm, as I'm, like, gathering myself, in my peripheral vision, I see Sam Wrinkle running the other direction laughing at me just absolutely like, and so, but I get up and not, I'm not even the block party. Just stop. I mean, just looking, I mean, no one knows if they should laugh or if they need to call the ambulance, no one has any idea. And so by the end of it, I think the only person that cared was Trisha about how I was, I think everyone else was like, ah, it's fine. And so, um, but here's the thing. I, that was public humiliation for me. You know, it's like getting up, gathering myself, feeling really hurt physically and looking at everybody watching me, not cool and not a good day. And, but but here's the deal with, with this woman caught in adultery, her public humiliation is a lot different than mine because mine, it wasn't really my fault. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't, I mean, maybe partially my fault. It was Rodney's fault. I think in his mind, he was like, I'm going to lead him right into that park van. And I don't know. I've never. He's never admitted it, though. never admitted it. But to some degree, it's not entirely my fault, you know. The woman, this is her sin that got made public. She's guilty right now. Twice in this passage, the woman was caught in adultery, the woman was caught in adultery. Two times it mentions it. She's not innocent. And her sin becomes into the public light. And so she gets drugged out to this crowd. And you just can't, you just put yourself in the story, you can just imagine the sort of shame and the sort of embarrassment that this is. She probably has friends in the crowd. I mean, she might have family members in the crowd. And here she is, just got caught in the act of adultery. She's probably naked or hastily clothed or really close to. And I mean, you can just, she probably can't even look up at anybody. I mean, just sits there with her head down with just tears of embarrassment and shame streaming down her face. And then, to top it off, there's a chance she might get stoned momentarily. I mean, this is a really rough day for this woman. And so there's a chance, I mean, she's looking down at the ground, tears running down, embarrassed, humiliated in front of a public crowd. This is like a woman's nightmare to be standing here like this. And so she's publicly humiliated, embarrassed, and to top it off, there's a good chance that she might be stoned here for all she knows. You ever been there? But I mean this is rock bottom for this lady. Rock bottom for this woman. Where something, I mean you just you've just reached the end of your rope and you just don't know where else to go. So much so that it's just hard for you to move. This is the kind of situation that this woman's in. I mean she's just completely at rock bottom, doesn't know where to turn. And let's look how Jesus responds. This is Jesus' perspective, verse 7. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Three things that Jesus does. First thing is he writes on the ground. There's ever a verse that has created speculation. It's this verse. What in the world did Jesus write on the ground? The answer is, we don't know. We won't know until for sure we're on the other side. But for now, we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. But I just want to point out one thing. Every single time I see this in Jesus's life, which is almost every page of the Gospels, I always like to point this out. And that is, I just want you to notice the demeanor of Jesus. Like he is in the middle of a very tense, chaotic situation. I mean, it's not just life and death for this woman. It's life and death for Jesus. I mean, for he knows what's going on. He knows they're trying to get him killed. And Jesus, in the middle of this, he doesn't fret. He's not worried. He's not anxious. He just, just bends down and writes on the ground. And so Jesus demonstrates such a calm, God-trusting, god trusting God is my father. I know he's present sort of demeanor that there's never any hint of worry, anxiety, fear. He doesn't need to feel the need to argue with them, doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He just has this calm sort of poised demeanor here. And this is, you know, this for a person like me, this is always personally helpful because what Jesus does for us is he introduces God as father to us. Like, for example, just to give you a statistic, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, wish we could do this, we don't have time today, but Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, in those three chapters, Jesus refers to God as Father seventeen times. If you were to take every other reference to God as Father in the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament, that would not equal the number of times that Jesus refers to God as Father in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. Because Jesus knows, he's trying to introduce us to the idea that God is not just a God who sits on a throne up above us, high above us in the heavens, who's sovereign and in control and transcendent, although he is all of those things, but God is Father to us individually where no matter what situation you walk through, that God is intimately and presently acquainted with your scenario walking through right there with you. And so it's, this is crazy. I mean, this is unbelievable that God plans everyone's life from beginning to end. Isaiah, from the end I plan the beginning to the end. I plan everything. So he's got all this planning and he's up above and he's holding it together and he's sovereign, making sure that his plan gets done moment by moment in each of our individual lives And he's actually there with us walking through life with us moment by moment by moment by moment. But you will never find that story in any other religion. In every other religion, God is up high. He's in a distant kingdom. He's far above. He's in heavens, but he's not presently here with us in the gospel and Christianity and how things are for us. We get both a God who is sovereign and in control powerful, holding things together. And he's also present day in your life. Father walking you through whatever situation you come, you go through. That's exact. And this Jesus, if there's anybody that has an absolute, I mean, He just knows God as father Jesus all the time. I only do what I see my father doing. It's like there's no sort of anxiety here. There's no sort of fret. There's no sort of worry. It's just Jesus is just calm and poised. And doesn't, the circumstances does not dictate Jesus' response. The fact that God is Father controls Jesus. And just like God is Father to Jesus the Son, so God is Father to all of his sons and daughters now who are in Christ Jesus. That is always something I like to point out. Always something. Number two, Jesus says something. This is what he says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw its stone at her. What's he saying here? Well, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying for you to bring an accusation against somebody, you have to be sinless. That would not make sense. That's not the law that Jesus is referring to. That was not a part of that. That wouldn't make any sense. I mean, if you think about it, if a murderer is going around and if we were to accuse that murderer, I mean, if we were not To be able to accuse that murder unless we were perfectly sinless, that'd be crazy. You know, just think about your family. I mean, if you're going to need to discipline your child and you were to have to be without sin as a parent to discipline your child, that wouldn't make any sense. So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you, the Pharisees, have to be completely without sin to bring an accusation on the woman. What he's doing here is he's actually referring to a law in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. Now you have to hang with me here because this is really cool how Jesus kind of sidesteps the issue and avoids everything. So what Jesus does is he refers back to an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the law said this, if you were to bring an accusation, a capital level punishment accusation to an individual, like murder or adultery or something like that, if you're going to accuse somebody of murder or adultery or embezzlement or something that's a really capital-level offense in the Old Testament, you were to, A, have to be there to stone the person to help with the stoning. The Pharisees, they got that box. Check that box. And two, or B, you would actually have to be innocent of the sin that you're accusing the, the person of. So number, let me just make sure we're all together here. This is important. The law says that what Jesus is referring to is just genius, I mean, for Jesus, he has a way of punching the Pharisees right in the mouth without actually doing it. It's great. So this is him just squaring up and just without actually doing it. And so what he does is he quotes the law. And the law basically says, if you were to bring a capital level offense to somebody and accuse them of it, you would A, have to be there present to help in their stoning. And B, you'd have to be innocent of the sin you're accusing them of. So what's he saying to the Pharisees right now? He's looking at them and he's going... I know you're a hypocrite. I know you're a hypocrite. I have a window into your soul. You're a hypocrite. You've committed adultery, adultery, adultery. What we don't know is if it was literally adultery or if he's just talking about lust in their heart. We're not really sure. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you're guilty of the same sin. You are guilty of the same sin. And so he just, just, he just knows you. Jesus knows you. Like he can't just windows into your soul. I don't know your soul. But Jesus just windows into your soul, into your soul, into your soul. And so one at a time, these guys drop their stones and walk away. And what Jesus does is he actually, this is genius. He uses the law that the Pharisees are so wanting to uphold to disarm the Pharisees from being able to accuse this woman. He uses the law to disarm them. And so now he doesn't have to execute the woman and he's still going to live. It's like everything worked out great because Jesus is God and he's genius like that. So this is a really fascinating situation. So now one at a time, these men begin to walk away, walk away, walk away. Jesus looks at them and goes, I know you, you committed adultery, lust. I know you, I know you. Can't, you can't accuse this woman. You cannot accuse this woman. So I think what he draws in the sand is like, you know, Phil the Pharisee, I know you committed adultery, you know, Jennifer. (laughs) I doubt that's what he did, but that's just how I like to think of it. So one at a time, these guys drop their stones, start walking away, walking away, walking away. Now here's the picture we get Jesus, we get this woman face-to-face with each other. This woman probably can't even lift up her face. I mean, she, I mean if you put yourself in this woman's perspective, she might think this guy's going to stone me to death right now. I mean, for all she knows, this man Jesus is the only one that is able to stone her and can legally accuse her of adultery and can thereby execute her. I mean, to her, that's, she still is not out of the loop yet. I mean, she's probably thinking, I wish there were more guys. It might not take as long. I mean, that's so she's sitting here, fear, worry, embarrassment, humiliation, tears running down her face. Probably can't even hold up her eyes, probably can't even lift up her face. She's standing there naked with all of her sin out in the open. This is what Jesus says Jesus stood up to her and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she looked, uh, and she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. From now on, sin no more. I mean, you just... Like, this is Jesus saying, I don't condemn you, woman, because I'm going to be condemned for you. Right? This is Jesus saying... You don't even need a small pebble of God's wrath thrown against you because I am going to absorb upon myself the massive stone of God's wrath on your behalf so that you don't have to endure the wrath. This is grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, coming right into this woman's life, right in the midst of her sin. Grace pierces her right in the midst of her sin, and she doesn't have to... I mean, this is the this is the crazy thing, is she's guilty. It's not like Jesus says, you're not guilty, so you're not condemned. Jesus says, you're guilty, you're not condemned. I mean, every other religion, you're guilty. Not guilty, not condemned. You're guilty, you're condemned. But in Christian, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he pronounces the woman just like he pronounces you and you and me. You're guilty, but not condemned. It's the only religion you'll ever find that has that message attached to it. Because Jesus is condemned for those of us that are in Christ. And so listen, you are the woman in the story. You are the person that is standing naked in front of God with all of your sin out in the open. And just like Jesus Christ looked at this woman and said, woman, I don't condemn you. Go now and sin no more. So Jesus looks you in the face and goes, not guilty, not condemned. Go now, sin no more. You're the one. I mean, you, don't, you can't read this passage and go, man, that woman was really bad. Glad I'm not like her. That's a misread. You've misread it. You are the spiritual, naked, all your stuff out in front of Jesus, where Jesus looks you in the face and goes, I know you're guilty. Not condemned. Not condemned. But then he says something else. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the one point I want to make today. If you remember Noah, this is just the heart of the gospel. This is review for many of us in here, but it's a review that's absolutely necessary. And so here's the one point. In Jesus's mind, grace always brings about obedience. Always. Now, you have to be careful here because we are, Stonegate, definitely what's called a grace-driven church. Meaning, we sing songs about God's grace, we, sing, we preach about God's grace, we love God's grace, we exalt the love, grace, mercy, forgiveness of God. And because we're all sinners, the sinful residue that remains inside of us wants to take grace and sort of say, I don't need to be obedient. But I want you to see, out of Jesus' own mouth, grace and obedience are not two different things, mutually exclusive ideas, where there is an absolute understanding of grace, where grace has pierced you and penetrated you right into your soul in the midst of your sin, there will be an outflowing life of obedience. Grace brings about obedience and change all the time. It's like in, you know, like 40 years ago, church history here, you know, a lot of our generally, general statements, but we talked a lot about the law in obedience and do this and do right and do this and and sin and we just talked a lot about that and then the 90s came around and the pendulum just kicked the other direction and now we want to talk about grace love mercy forgiveness kindness but we don't want to talk about obedience because obedience is like a synonym for legalism which is not but what jesus is saying is both are true all the time there is, on the one hand, grace for you 100% of the time. doesn't matter your past sins, present sins, future sins. Grace, grace, grace to you all the time. And you are called to be absolutely ferocious about being obedient to God. Both of them exist. It's not like a balancing game, you know. It's not like, you got to be careful with semantics. It's not like 50% grace and 50% obedience. It's like 100% grace and 100% us striving for obedience that's how it happens. Actually, here's my two more things. I want to answer this question. How does it happen? That's a great question. How does grace bring about change? How does grace bring about change? There are three things. First is gratitude. Like, think about it from this woman's perspective. When she receives the grace of God, I mean, when she is in the middle of that situation, she could be lined up at the back wall and just stoned. And rather than being stoned, Jesus looks at her and says, I don't condemn you and just lavishes grace. And then Jesus says, go now and sin no more. You think that woman was like, man, I wish I could still I wish I could still sin a little bit. She was over. She had to have been overwhelmed with gratitude Because Jesus not only spared her physical life, He saved her spiritual soul. And so this woman, you just imagine the sort of gratitude that she must feel. Thank you, God, that you did not line me up next to this woman and pelt me with rocks until I die. Thank you, God, that you did not, that you're not going to show wrath on me, but you're only going to show love and grace and affection towards me. Thank you, God, that Jesus Christ was my condemnation. That for now, those of us who are in Christ are not condemned. So gratitude, what grace does is it fills the heart with gratitude. And then it just produces worship for God, right? So you get gratitude, then you get worship or love. So worship just fills the the heart. And as we understand our sin and as we understand that grace goes further and well beyond the shame and the sin, as that begins to land in us, it gives us gratitude for Jesus and worship towards Jesus. So now the cross begins to broaden and widen in our minds. And that just leads to, number three, devotion to Jesus. You get gratitude, you get worship, then you just get devotion. And that's the That's the in-between stage of receiving grace and living obedient lives. The in-between stage is grace attacking your motives. It's grace changing your motives. I want to be obedient to Jesus because I'm so in awe over what he's done. I'm so thankful. I have gratitude over what he's done. I worship him for what he's done. And the only natural reaction is to go, yeah, I want to be obedient. So that's how grace and obedience... Obedience is not a bad word. Legalism is a bad word. It's not legalism. It's obedience. It's loving, joy-filled, I want more Jesus in my life, obedience. That's what it is. And here's why this is important. Last point, we're done. Where there are Christians that are obeying God, that are loving God, filled with gratitude, filled with joy and worship and are pursuing obedience that means more glory to god and more joy for you and i because you're created for just that purpose the way god designed the world was so that human beings his image bearers would walk in obedience to him so when we as his image bearers love god Filled with gratitude towards God. Receive the grace of God. And then walk in obedience with God. That is glory to God. And that is our greatest joy in life. You're the woman in the story. You're the woman. You're the one that's naked in front of Jesus. Jesus sees every single... I don't know your soul. I don't know your mistakes. I don't know your... But Jesus looks at all of us. You're guilty, but you're not condemned. Grace and obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, who is our condemnation, who received the wrath, That was supposed to go to us. So that now we can receive grace. Now that we can be. You can pour out. And lavish love, affection, mercy, grace, kindness on us. God I pray that we wouldn't abuse grace. um, That grace would. Take us from where we are. That it would produce motives. That are God honoring. Filled with worship. Filled with joy. That then slingshot us. And launch us into. Into a joy-filled struggle for obedience. So I pray that that would happen and pray that you would just be gracious to grant us that. Um, God, that that this morning would be a morning that is about exalting what Jesus has done for us. And that now he looks at us and goes, yeah, you're guilty, but you're not condemned. Mm -hmm. I pray that this morning would be honoring to you, and that this would be spiritually helpful for your people who are here, and that this would create just a, a deep love for who you are and a deep desire to walk in obedience to how you've called us. It's in your son's name I pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.